2: Bombus. big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim. Today I'm going to be speaking to the citizen journalist Elliot Higgins, the founder of the independent intelligence agency Bellingcat. Elliot first started out as a blogger investigating the Syrian civil war from his own home and famously he used YouTube videos to track the transport and use of weapons, uncovering the Syrian government's use of barrel bombs. In 2014 he founded Bellingcat, a website for other citizen journalists like him, think MI6 but using open source information and he uncovered information on the Yemeni civil war and also identified the culprits in the Skirpal poisoning case. So how did a group of self-taught internet sleuths end up solving one of the biggest cases of our time? Higgins, thank you so much for joining us here on The Prospect Interview. Thank you for having me. So you write at the end of your book that you're not exactly a journalist or a human rights activist or a computer scientist, but you somehow exist at the nexus of all those disciplines. So perhaps you could begin by telling us, maybe in the simplest possible terms, what it is that you and Bellingcat, uh, which is your organisation, exactly
1: do. Um, So we do something called online open source investigation, which is focusing on online sources that are publicly available for our investigative work. And that can be on a whole range of subjects. Um, We're probably best known for uh, our work in discovering who was behind the downing of MH17, uh, the investigation into the poisoning of um, Sergei Skripal, more recently our investigation into who was behind the poisoning of uh, the opposition politician Navalny in Russia. But what we very often, using uh, just things that have been shared online, that could be social media posts, satellite imagery on services like Google Earth, um, just online databases of all kinds. Um, you know, just any information that's available online, and then using that and combining it to verify information and then kind of piece together what happened at different events.
2: So these open source materials, um, as you said, there could be, you know, social media posts by, you know, a, a soldier just taking a selfie or something in in Russia or Ukraine or something, uh, something as, as basic as that.
1: Yeah, and um, a good example is recently with what happened on uh, January 6th with the, in the capital, um, a lot of what we've been using are the videos and photographs taken by the people themselves as they entered the building and, uh, you know, we're in the middle of breaking various laws. So by Collecting all those videos, I think we've got something like 400 videos and photographs now, you can actually create a kind of um, timeline of events that you have kind of videos from multiple angles showing things as they were happening, you can kind of sequence those up and get a much better understanding of what was actually happening on the ground. It's often said that the capacity of the internet
2: to deceive is enormous and we will come on to sort of uh, fake news and um, conspiracies later. But what is also apparent is that there's so much out there that is, if you do enough hard investigating, it's hard to keep anything a
1: secret. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the various kind of topics, like um, in certain parts of the world, they just don't use you know, the internet that much because of the infrastructure. But... Even in places like Yemen, if you're looking into kind of Saudi airstrikes as we've done, you'll find a lot of evidence from the ground filmed by kind of various uh, activists and media centers and local people's tweets and other pieces of information. They can help you kind of establish a timeline of events, what happened um, if the story being presented by one side is kind of uh, validated by that information or it's proven to be untrue. Um, So a, a lot of what we do, you know, when we're looking at conflict zones in particular is looking at an incident, seeing what one side says, what the other side is saying, and using that open source material to establish what the actual truth is. And when you started all this, it was more of a hobby, am I right? Yeah, I um, started doing this back in 2011. Really, um, I, I had a completely different job. I was working in various kind of finance and admin roles But in 2011, I had a lot of time to kind of, you know, go on the internet and uh, look at stuff that was happening. And what was happening was the Arab Spring. So there were videos coming from there and there was lots of kind of online debate about, you know, are these videos showing what they claim to show? But no one was really doing any analysis of it. And I just kind of accidentally figured out that you could um, look at satellite imagery. Look at the objects in that satellite imagery and then compare it to the videos and photographs and confirm where something was filmed and this is what we now call geolocation but then no one was really doing that so this kind of new analysis you could do of this imagery to you know, add an extra level of verification about the claims around them was a real change to how this information was being used. And then in early 2012, I started a blog rather than just kind of posting on internet forums and Twitter about it. And that kind of is where I started off with my kind of trajectory into what Bellingcat is now.
2: And it wasn't just you, there were other people who were, who were also involved in um, almost in their spare time doing the kind of research that you're describing.
1: Yeah, so um, there really kind of arose this kind of online community of people who are interested um, in what was going on in the Arab Spring in particular at that point, um, but for different reasons. You had kind of human rights people, people working in the media, um, just you know people who were just interested in the topic, you were using social media to discuss it, but what happened is because we were kind of enabled by the kind of social media to talk to each other, we created this community and even now those kind of early members of that community, were still in touch, even though some of them have moved on to like working at the New York Times and others have joined kind of Bellingcat and others have gone elsewhere. We still communicate a lot and share ideas. And I think one thing that's really nice about our kind of community is we're very supportive of each other. And if we find stuff we want to share it with other people to look at so, they have input into it so a lot of what we do which is very different from other investigative organizations is we kind of share online what we're looking into asking people if they you know might recognize something or they might know where something is um in a way we effectively turn our kind of uh followers into a big kind of organic search engine looking for kind of all different kinds of things and then using our processes if people someone finds something we then verify it and make sure that it's actually accurate So, Did you think of yourself as more of
2: a fact-checking organisation or journalists or were you thinking that, you know, journalism as it was being practised wasn't doing these kinds of things?
1: At the point when I started in 2011, I was particularly frustrated that you could see kind of the reporting coming in with what was happening in Libya. But then you had kind of journalists on the ground who were saying things and activists, individuals who are posting from Libya. And I realized you could actually get a much finer kind of granular understanding of what was happening by piecing together all that online information, more so than the kind of, you know, singular perspective, I guess you were getting from journalists on the ground. And often in areas where there was, there were no journalists because all you had there were the kind of local activists spilling stuff and putting it online. Then you kind of have to verify what these people are saying are actually true as best as you can with, you know, this user generated content. But it kind of just was very frustrating for me that, you would see an article you know journalists would describe seeing something but then you had like 20 other sources from different perspectives giving much much more detail on what was actually happening sometimes in areas where these journalists weren't even reaching so that kind of was my initial kind of frustration that i found and why i kind of started doing it in part plus also there was always already a lot of kind of bloggers online who were quite political and often sharing stuff with um, They would find a video and they would decide a lot about that video without actually really understanding what the video showed and then that would become part of this kind of alternative media ecosystem that just kept on taking these errors and mistakes and this misinformation and kind of recycling it until it built built this kind of complete alternative reality about what was happening in these places and this is something that nowadays we're seeing becoming an increasing problem particularly in the US with QAnon where The thing with the Internet allows people not only to fact check stuff and verify stuff, but go off and create these alternative media ecosystems where they become completely detached by reality and are well served by these ecosystems. So they have no reason to engage with the mainstream. Um, And so when it comes down to fact checking, I mean, that's kind of part of what we do as part and parcel of the the job, really. Um, But it kind of has a much, much wider, within the context, a kind of wider um, role to play, I think.
2: You talked about the conspiracy theories and uh, partisans on different sides. One conflict in which that was very much in evidence it was the Syrian war, and that was a conflict that also became very difficult for journalists to cover because it was so dangerous for them to be on the ground. But there was huge amounts of um, video and, and information coming at you, and you could you could cover it from your from your computer at home, couldn't you?
1: Yeah so um, I started writing about that on my blog in 2012 and kind of early on I was just kind of looking at videos and doing quite simple stuff like saying okay here's some videos of rebels they've got some sort of tank can I figure out what kind of tank that is or here here's a bomb that people said has been dropped on them do what can I figure out exactly what that bomb is and you know what's, what's inside it and that kind of was a particular interest in 2012 because that's when you started seeing things like cluster bombs being used but in early 2013 I had um, probably my first really big story where by watching videos posted online by the Syrian rebels um, showing them using these new weapons that kind of appeared from nowhere, um, I was able to figure out that all these weapons were coming from Croatia and by sharing that information with the New York Times they were able then to ask um, various policy members who basically admitted that the Saudis had been arming rebel groups through Jordan and those videos were the first kind of solid evidence that this was something that was actually going on rather than something that was kind of rumoured to have been going on. Um, and that was all just videos posted online by the people getting these weapons in, as part of this secret operation and just putting it on the internet because they got these kind of new toys to play with. Also in
2: 2013, there was the Ghouta chemical weapons attack, which was blamed on the Assad regime. The Assad regime denied it, said it was asran provocateurs or the rebels. And it became one of these... and to some extent, for in some quarters, still is a, mo- a moment of controversy where no one really knows um, what happened. Um, but, but, you know, you went to investigate that in, in quite a lot of detail, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were, I think on the day, around 200 videos filmed that showed um, a combination of the victims, you know, being treated in um, various um, medical points. You had the remains of the munitions, uh, animals that were killed. So a whole range of information. And what I focused on in particular were the remains of the munitions that, that were use, because they were quite unusual to uh, kind of an entree die, they looked like they were kind of DIY weapons. So to some people, that was enough proof that all oh, the rebels must have been behind it because they're DIY weapons and the Syrian government would never use such things. But um, what I actually discovered were the previous examples of Syrian forces being filmed with the same kind of rockets, an explosive variant of this chemical weapon, absolutely identical in every way. And there are previous examples of these rockets being used in other chemical attacks one that was only a few weeks earlier. So it wasn't, I think when you're talking about chemical weapons and attacks in Syria, often you're dealing with, um, if you're talking to an ordinary audience, they don't know the scale of chemical weapons attacks used in Syria. They don't realize that there's literally been hundreds of chemical weapons attacks. So without the full context of that, it's, um, often very hard to kind of really explain quickly why you think, you know, the Syrian government's behind this. And what I saw in the debate in parliament that happened around that time about whether or not there should be uh, action taken really was quite disheartening because rather than looking at this kind of massive wealth of evidence and analysis that was, you know, available, there were basically politicians were debating whatever their favourite columnist had just written about it. There no real un- understanding or insight into what they were debating. And yet they were kind of, you know, Preparing to take very serious action that had an impact not just in Syria but also on how seriously we take the use of chemical weapons internationally, and it was basically just based on a bunch of Sunday columnists.
2: Yeah, and uh, Seymour Hersh, uh, who the the, the, uh, uh, the journalist wrote sceptically about um, whether the attacks have been carried out by the um, Assad government. I and mean, what did you make of that account and, um, and and that kind of journalism?
1: Well, I mean, I was uh, quite a big fan of Seymour Hirsch. I was very excited about hearing his, you know, seeing that article and reading it. Um, and unfortunately, my enthusiasm was quickly drained as I started reading it because it was very thinly sourced. It included stuff that didn't make any sense in the context of this open source evidence I'd been discovering. And it seemed in the end, Hirsch was almost proud of ignoring these digital sources, even though they provided a vast amount of evidence. It's like if someone had given you 200 videos from the My Lai Massacre and Seymour Hersh said, oh, I don't need to look at those. I've got my sources. Um, You'd think he's mad. But when it comes to, you know, a huge chemical weapons acts where, you know, over a thousand people died, he seemed to think it was legitimate to completely ignore and not even consider this evidence, which a lot of people kind of framed as an approach of, you know, new v- journalism versus old journalism. But, you know, for me, journalism is always checking all your available sources before you write stuff. So that's just, you know, good journalism versus bad journalism.
2: Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One of the most fascinating accounts in the book is when you talk about how you um, uncovered the identities of the Salisbury poisoning culprits. Um, and uh, you weren't just using open source material at that point. You were, you, were, You were sort of you know buying records from from russia trying to cross-reference things working out who traveled on which airline when it's kind of an amazing um sort of work of investigation do you feel that you, your organization moved a little bit into a different kind of direction it's almost like you're a like a sort of freelance intelligence agency there um uh, rather than just using open source material.
1: Well, it, I mean, it's something we have a lot of debate on in in Bellingcat about using these kind of materials, because they do kind of go in many senses beyond traditional open sources. Um, although a lot of this data is just publicly leaked online, so you can find it. So technically it is open source. It's probably just um, kind of the harder end of the open source market rather than just Googling stuff. Um, but... A lot of this stuff is out there. Some of it we had to kind of buy from data brokers inside Russia, but we only did that because we were dealing with something in such an extreme circumstance. I mean, we couldn't expect that the Scrippled Assassins were gonna be posting on Facebook about popping over to Salisbury for business and that kind of thing. But we did have pieces of information about the suspects that was enough in combination with these other sources to start establishing more information about them. Plus, when we found that information, we then cross-reference it against other open sources to make sure that we weren't just relying on kind of one source to make a conclusion. It was verified by other independent sources. Um, but that was a very complicated investigation. But at, what we discovered then is the uh, Russian intelligence services often use the same pattern of behavior where they're making fake identities. and. Then, because we had gathered all these kind of leaked databases of car registrations and flights and house registrations, whenever we kind of came across a new story where there were kind of new, you know, do agents involved, for example, like the um, hacking of the OPCW, we already understood how they faked their identity. So we could very rapidly use all that data to establish their real identities. Um, And then that would be a new kind of source of leads for us. And that most recently we did uh, late last year, Um, with the Navalny assassination attempt, where we used very similar methodologies of, you know, digging through this material, um, getting phone records and those kind of things to establish the involvement of the uh, Russian intelligence services, the FSB, in the assassination and their connection to effectively a secret Russian chemical weapons program um, that was previously unknown. And that finally led up with Navalny actually calling up one of his poisoners and having a chat with him about the poisoning by pretending he was uh, one of his superiors um, uh, assistants which was a bizarre experience.
2: Bizarre indeed. And, and, and one of the ways that the Russians and other sort of, you know, the, 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 tro- the troll organisations, as it were, that have been um, replying and, and responding to you, one of the ways that they have been trying to throw you off course is by just throwing out loads of different kinds of theories and information and trying to overload you with things. It seems that no longer is it about keeping secrets, uh, as such, it's more about sort of putting out as much different kind of contradictory information as possible to sort of to muddy the waters, so then people can then latch
1: on to whichever theory suits their own
2: worldview.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I, I think Russia has been quite good at taking advantage of the kind of dynamic that exists now on the internet with um, kind of conspiracy theorists and um, basically people who exist in alternative media ecosystems. And that's it, it. It's kind of two different elements. I see. First, you have kind of the Russian. Um, Russians are very keen on creating disinformation and how they kind of spread that. On the other side, you now have these kind of alternative uh, ecosystems and communities who get all their information from this community, and they can be focused on a range of topics, from you know the flat Earth movement, QAnon, chemical weapon troopers, MH17 troopers. The kind of communities are similar in the way they're structured and how they're isolated from the mainstream media and that at core they have a distrust of authority, so they reject what they consider to be mainstream authority. And with the case of Russia, they use these communities to basically, um, you know, they, they look at what these communities are saying and quite often just recycle what they're saying. And then the community see that and then they kind of bring that back into the community think it's been validated in a sense. And it just becomes part of the kind of conversation in that community. So. Often when you're dealing with um, Russian disinformation, people are thinking of this as something that Russia does to a community, but often it's something that Russia is taking from a community and that acts as a catalyst for that community to kind of grow and share information. So, and this is, you know, what I've observed, you know, with the work on Syria and chemical weapons, for example, you see a community around that that you know, thinks it's all fake and that you know it's all to make acid look, look bad and it's basically just a rerun of the Iraq invasion in 2003. You have this with MH17 who think it's just a false flag to draw the West into uh, the conflict and Russia takes those communities and uses what they're saying in their own propaganda. And it is quite shocking sometimes when you're literally seeing Russian officials repeating what you've just seen a couple of days earlier on conspiracy forums. And that happens time and time again. And some of these conspiracy f- forums are, are very close to, close to
2: home, aren't they? I mean, y- you talk about, um, you know, the, the far right, particularly in America, message boards like 4chan and 8chan, and these are people not being, as you said, directed by, you know, sinister, rational or any other governmental source they seem to be almost self-creating conspiracy theories sort of encouraging each other and radicalizing each other
1: yeah it is basically radicalization is what is happening online if you're someone who believes something fringe and it, say it was you know 30 years ago you believe the earth is flat you'd find it very difficult to find people in your social earth circle who agree now you go on the internet you type in you know flat earth and you get re- suggested forums, YouTube channels, everything you could ever want to learn about the flat earth and you allow yourself to be completely absorbed in that and those communities create these alternative media ecosystems. So the kind of changes in the way that we get information um, you know has really I think really kind of changed our I guess relationship with the truth and reality in some, some respects and what you're seeing in the U.S. is what happens when mainstream political parties look at those communities and think, okay, we can use these to our own advantage. We can kind of, you know, they support Donald Trump. So why don't we, you know, give him a little wink, a sly wink and say, actually, we're, you know I can use you for my base. And, you know, people like Ted Cruz and other Republican politicians have tried to do this. And Trump certainly has. And now it's basically fed into these, the idea that these people have that there is something wrong with the election. And now they've got officials saying that. So you know these people are people they aren't they don't think i'm spreading misinformation and disinformation they're thinking i'm trying to save the world from a satanic cult of pedophiles who are draining adrenochrome chromin or whatever they call it from the brains of children as they torture them they believe this stuff and if you believe something like that and there was, you're in a crowd with thousands of people who also believe something like that and you're just meters away from an election being stolen from you yeah you're going to run up and attack the capital because you know you're trying to save the world and this is what these people think so you can't approach, approach these people as them understanding that they're part of a disinformation ecosystem they consider themselves as fact-finding heroes who only care about the truth and i think politicians and the people who use those for their own Gains are complicit in the violence that happens afterwards.
2: And in the attack on the Capitol, we did see the bizarre spectacle of, you know, it was almost like a sort of 4chan supporters meetup, wasn't it? With people dressed up in sort of bizarre clothes, almost half joking, but were they taking it seriously? Um, and this sort of jokey but sinister online culture has kind of burst into the really into the mainstream in in that attack.
1: And I think what happens as well is you have people within that who take this stuff very seriously and that's an increasing number of people. Um, before the, this, these events happened, we published an article on Bellingcat looking at their kind of online chatter around this event. And people like saying, I've told, you know, I've just told my children that I might never see them again because I'm going to the Capitol on January 16th to stop the election. Or, you know, other people say, oh, we really need to, you know, decide when we're going to storm the building. They were planning all of this, they were discussing it. And it's very easy to look at that stuff and think, oh, well, that's just ch- silly chat of, you know, silly people talking about this stuff. But, you know, people came prepared. People came, you know, flexicuffs to, you know, they were planning to take hostages and, you know, give trials and all kinds of wild stuff, some of them. And it's not one big group. It's made up of lots of, it, of little groups. So you have some who are kind of the militia movement and the far right, you know, real neo-Nazi types, and then the QAnon types and the MAGA types all in this crowd, some who are more capable of violence than others, but they kind of ride the wave into the building of all these kind of angry people who think they're trying to save America from you know, the evil Democrats stealing the election. And they believe this entire mythology they've built and they have a whole media ecosystem that serves them. And it's very sad when the likes of Fox News starts promoting these kind of ideas because then these alternative media ecosystems who exist really outside of reality start creeping into mainstream Um, kind of narratives around, you know, right wing politics. So what you start finding is the base of the Republican Party is slowly kind of being replaced by this kind of parasitic alternative reality, um, you know, culture that is completely, you know, taking over the political party. And now I think the Republican Party finds themselves in a very difficult situation where if Trump says he's going to run again and the Republicans, you know, don't let him be the candidate, he'll probably take a good chunk of their voters with him when he runs as an independent. Um, and it seems that
2: 6th um, January was a turning point, certainly for social media organizations. So Trump is now banned from Facebook and um, and Twitter. Um, Facebook and YouTube have also been taking down lots of material and realizing that their platforms are being used to spread this kind of disinformation. I mean, if, if for a start, is that just too late? Um, and also are there dangers in them sort of indiscriminately taking down material, the kind of things that you may, need to sort of research and uncover and, and the
1: conspiracies and the the, the... I mean, it's i mean for us it's really a question of you know we do like seeing as much information as possible but we do recognize that now the way in which social media and you know various platforms have been used to spread and connect people is extremely dangerous um and i you know i'm, I'm all for free speech but these people are just spreading disinformation that is turning people into Um, You know, legends in their own minds, but actually, you know, effectively domestic terrorists. I mean, it's the same kind of radicalization you would see with ISIS or, you know, Islamic extremists. You're seeing now with Trump supporters, effectively, it's the same, really, in a way, the same mechanisms are behind it. It's just instead of it being about religion, I mean, it's the bit with the Republicans, it's about Donald Trump. And this entire fantasy world that's been created around him and they genuinely believe it and they've been radicalized online because when you click on the video that says oh the election was stolen you get recommended another 10 videos of the same theme. not everyone might click on the next video but someone will and someone else will click on the next video and so on and so forth between so you basically filter people to the as the most extreme beliefs that they're willing to accept and when they don't want to click on the videos because it says something too crazy for them, they get to their level of kind of um, extremism. And for most people, that's something that's quite normal and mild. But what we've seen very clearly on January 6th is what happens to the people who keep clicking on those videos and keep clicking on those links until they go deeper and deeper, and can't see any light on the you know from where they've come. They're just completely enveloped in conspiracy theories that they completely believe, and those conspiracy theories are telling them that you know what's happening in the world needs them to stop it. And you have people then kicking down doors, killing police officers and so on and so forth.
2: I'll just end with a more personal point. I mean, over the last 10 years or so, you must have seen a lot of extremely harrowing things. I think in the book you mentioned that, you know, one of those was watching the live streamed mosque assault in, in New Zealand, where a number of people were were murdered. Uh, do you worry about the effect on your own mental health and what it what it means to be, you know, for yourself to be constantly exposed to
1: these kind of images? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something um, we discuss a lot, um, both within Bellingcat and, then, you know, within the broader kind of open source community and it relates to kind of human rights and kind of, um, Media organisations as well who are looking through this material themselves and the issues around vicarious trauma. I've never really had, a, I've never really felt a neg- negative impact myself, but I do know that you just you have to manage how you consume this information. Like the Christchurch shooting, the one that was live streamed, um, I turned it on for about thirty seconds and I realised the way it was going and I thought there's literally no reason for me to be watching this because it was really horrifying, but. You know, digging through the wreckage of things like um, MH17 to find little shrapnel holes, you do see, you know, the remains of people within that, but you kind of can kind of compartmentalize and kind of detach yourself from that kind of imagery. And I think that's a very important thing to do when you're doing this kind of work, kind of really separate yourself from uh, kind of the more violent imagery that comes out of these things. But it's something that, you know, when you're working with a range of staff members, you have to you know, kind of monitor to them and to make sure they aren't seeing too much content. Like, for example, we've been looking at the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict that was happening late last year. And there was some really nasty footage coming from there. And um, we were very carefully monitoring the kind of... Um, uh, reaction of our staff members to that to make sure there wasn't any kind of issues that were arising from that and telling them you know not to look at certain things and some of us who were kind of more u- used to looking at this kind of footage you know looking at it first and then recommending people don't watch it if it was like really horrifying and what's the next big thing that you're investigating well um we're we've been working to collect videos from the January 6th protests so we can, you know, start identifying certain things. For example, we were looking at some of the police officers who were attacked to see how they were attacked and um, who, who was behind that. Um, one video we discovered yesterday shows one of the entrances where police officers grabbed by his helmet and basically dragged down a set of steps by protesters trying to get into the building. And that kind of been previously missed because it was happening in all this chaos. But when you actually see it and you can see, you find all the because what we'll do, we'll find like one image of something. Like we had this st- this photograph or this video still that was shared on Reddit of a police officer on the ground on the steps and two people bending over him. And I thought these two people were maybe trying to help him. But eventually I looked through the footage of that same location and found that same exact moment. Funnily enough, I could figure the exact moment out because there was someone who was caught on the photograph giving the finger to the police. And you can watch him in the video just as he's doing it. And that allows you to sync it to the exact moment and actually shows them not helping the police officer, but grabbing him by the back of his helmet and dragging him down the steps into the crowd. And it gives you a real sense of you know how vicious this was, because most of the footage early on was them inside the building where sure they were being quite aggressive, but there was really no footage of any violence against police. But this other footage shows, yes, there was actually a lot more of that going on than people first realised. Elliot Higgins, thanks so much for joining us. That's great, thank you very much.
2: And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week.